In this week's show, our guest is Juan Marcos Bejarano Gutierrez, a graduate from Siegel College and Spurs Institute of Jewish Learning and Leadership. He's a rabbi who received ordination from Yeshiva Mesilat Yesharim. He lives in Dallas and is a researcher in Spanish-Jewish history. He's the author of Secret Jews, the Complex Identity of Crypto-Jews and Crypto-Judaism. So as part of our exploration in the history of um, Spanish Jewry and their persecution, uh, we're going to do part two with him. Uh, last week we heard from David Ramirez, another researcher, and we're going to see from his perspective um, dealing with the history and the surviving communities in Latin America. So, Dr. Bejarano Gutierrez, tell us about your interest in Spanish-Jewish history. Hello, David. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, it's a pleasure and an honor to, honor to be with you. Um, the subject of crypto-Judaism and Sephardic history in general has been a fascination of mine for more than 20 years. Um, as I always relate to people, it's a personal story because it affects my, my family, uh, but it's also a, a personal story in a different sense in that I, I work with individuals that... Uh, are descendants of crypto-Jews, they're descendants of Anusim, or conversos, and, and many of them are struggling with different issues of identity, of faith, um, there are questions about Judaism, there are questions about Christianity, and so forth, and what I find fascinating is that many of them reflect in their personal experiences the kinds of challenges that Sephardic Jews and crypto-Jews of centuries past uh, faced as well. So it's sort of an interesting bridge between the past and the present and how history uh, is is a very important topic for, for those who are interested in, in anything related to the Jewish experience. What are some myths that people will perpetuate about these individuals? Well, I think, um, I, think I would say that they're more misunderstanding um, than necessarily myths. I think that um, what I do find sometimes is that there's a tendency among certain groups or certain individuals uh, to conflate different ideas uh, about Jewish identity and then about the Sephardic experience. So it's not something intentional, but this is the kind of information that they read on the Internet. So it's one of the challenges that we face because there's so much information that's available online um, people don't understand uh, the concept of peer review. They don't understand the differences between scholarship and, um, you know, sort of opinion. Um, for example, there was a, a, a family that I, I got to meet this last Shabbat. Um, they came to a, a service uh, that I was leading, and uh, they were from a crypto-Jewish background. And, you know, we talked a little bit, and uh, I was explaining to them that, you know, the challenge of the, of the scholar or of the researcher is to be uh, open-minded, uh, but ultimately to base themselves on provable facts. Um, we can state our opinion, we can provide conjecture about certain things that we don't know historically, but we always sort of have to have a foundation based off of things that we can verify. So one of the things he had mentioned, for example, was uh, the common claim uh, in the book of Obadiah about the, uh, the exile are the exiles that are in Sepharad. And so I told him that, you know, from an archaeological perspective, we know that Jews lived in the Iberian Peninsula from, you know, the 3rd and 4th century because we have tombstones and, and things of that nature that testify to that. Now, it's likely that they were there before, um, you know, perhaps in the 1st century, maybe even farther back, but we don't know 
and so he was a little bit shocked at the fact that I that I said that. And I said, listen, it's it's like a court case. You know, we have to bring our evidence, and we can sort of craft a story, and we can provide options um, or possibilities. But you know, we sort of have to rely ultimately on the the facts that we can present. And once I said that, you know, he I think he understood. Um, and I think it's really that, you know, it's the lack of understanding, the lack of knowledge, and the tendency to just believe anybody that comes on the scene and, and proclaims himself as a an expert in the field. And so I think that's really the biggest challenge, is that there's a lot of quote-unquote experts that really have not studied uh, uh, history, uh, they, don't, they don't know Jewish studies, they don't know halakha, um, and quite frankly, they may not even have a methodology to, to be able to approach those issues to begin with. So um, I think those are the, the biggest challenges that I've seen so far. And for our audience um, to, to be clear on, on, on things, let's make sure that we uh, define our terms. So halakha would be the Jewish law that, um, that is active in the Jewish community, like their practice and the different regulations on, on how to live. Is that what it is? Uh, yes, that's correct. So, what I try to do is I, I try to essentially combine both worlds in, in the sense that um, I look at myself as someone who loves history. I mean, I've studied that at the master's level, the doctoral level. Um, even in my rabbinic studies, you know, there was a great emphasis placed on uh, historical development. Um, so I can try to approach this from a scholarly perspective, um, and, and I... Some of the readers of, of my book, Secret Jews, that will tell me, you know, they, they, they find it to be, um, you know, there's not an agenda there. It's, it's unbiased. Uh, that's sort of, certainly my goal. Um, and then if there's an interest on the individual to reconnect with their Jewish past, then I would sort of work within the realm of halakha uh, and try to teach them about, uh, you know, Jewish beliefs and practices and so forth. So, um, you know, for me, they're, they're part of one world, but depending on the individual or the audience, I can I can try to separate those and then sort of present what I feel to be um, an honest opinion and, uh, you know, sort of state the fact and then I can sort of state what I might personally believe on a particular issue. But that's sort of my goal is, is to be um, honest with people and lay the historical and the religious and uh, philosophical issues on the table for them to consider when they, when they approach the subject. Well, here on The Mystic and the Skeptic, we want to hear as many opinions and perspectives as possible. So um, last time we talked to Mr. Ramirez about the history of how it all started. Let's go back in time to the beginning of this. And from your perspective, can you paint us a picture of the political and social climate in Spain at that time and how it, it developed up until now? I'll try to be uh, extremely brief, but I mean, essentially... Uh, you know, Jews have lived or lived in the Iberian Peninsula for more than a thousand years. And, and what's fascinating to me is that that uninterrupted existence of Jewish life in Spain and in Portugal or, or, you know, the Iberian Peninsula was longer than Jewish life um, in the land of Israel. You know, the, the Jews in the land of Israel have undergone uh, the exile in Babylon, uh, of course, the destruction of the temple by the Romans and in 70 CE and, and subsequent dispersions and, until the land was effectively depopulated of, of the majority of, of Jewish residents. Um, and so 
the Iberian Peninsula for Jews was was unique because of the longevity of, of the experience in, in life there. Um, you know, Jews lived there during the Roman period. Um, they lived there during the rise of the uh, the Visigoths, the Germanic tribes that had, in part, brought about the the downfall of the Roman Empire, at least in the West. Um, they lived there during the Islamic conquest of, of the peninsula. Um, and then as the uh, you know, Muslim caliphate uh, uh, fell, and it became divided into di different city-states, the taifas, um, you know, Jews lived in this changing environment where uh, many of them began to move into Christian kingdoms. Uh, so they, they really experienced uh, the Roman world, the Visigothic world, um, you know, the Islamic world, and then the, uh, and then the Christian Reconquista, the reconquest of the peninsula from Islamic control, uh, this emerging, uh, these emerging Christian kingdoms. Uh, so they really tasted and experienced, you know, very complex uh, political, economic, and social changes. Um, and most people have a tendency to look at that period of time, you know, as this sort of golden age. But uh, I always remember the words of, of Rabbi uh, Byron Sherwin of, of Blessed Memory. He said that it may have been golden, but it was probably golden only for a few hundred individuals. And those are the individuals that we typically read about, the, um, you know, the great uh, philosophers and uh, poets and grammarians. But, you know, I mean, obviously it was a better existence for the average Jew than it would have been in, um, in France or in Germany or in other parts of, of the world. Um, but it wasn't this kind of idyllic setting that people like to paint where uh, the, there were no issues. There, were, there was conflict that Jews experienced uh, under Islamic rule, and there was plenty of, of violence and persecution that they experienced in, uh, in the Christian world. Um, so um, I'll, I'll just say one more thing uh, before uh, turning it over to you, is that by the 14th century, uh, the Jewish communities of, of Castile and Aragon were really uh, at their height. You know, they, there were hundreds of thousands of Jews. Uh, you know, they were doing well, uh, you could say financially, politically. Um, it was a generally successful community. And, of course, all of that changed with the, the onslaught of violence that occurred in 1391. And for the next 100 years, we have a period of, of turmoil within the Jewish community because of the rise of, of these conversos, of these converts to, to Christianity, these Jewish converts to Christianity, who become this middle ground between the established Jewish community and then the established Christian community, um, and these conversos become, you know, the focal point of Christian policy toward Jews, um, and also, in some sense, I think, reflective of the modern-day Jewish experience. And what I mean by that is that conversos were living in two worlds. They were baptized Christians who continued to have Jewish family, they lived in the same neighborhoods, they you know, ate the same foods. They they often um, you know celebrated Passover. They kept Jewish customs with their family, uh, but they were legally Christian. And and my point in saying that you know they're reflective of the modern era is that you can think about the American experience in the sense that Jews today are extremely influenced by uh, the non-Jewish culture around them to the extent that they don't even realize how much they have absorbed um, you know American culture. 
and American perspectives on faith um, and uh, ideology. So it, it's it's a very interesting point of connection to the modern period, um, and of course it was a, a very important concern for the, the church and the monarchs in the uh, late 14th and, and into the 15th and 16th centuries um, in Castile and Aragon. How is this connected to the history of anti-Semitism? Well, I think that uh, there's two elements that we have to consider, and that is that, you know, Christianity from, I think we could argue from the beginnings of the second century of the Common Era, uh, and some would argue even before then, but um, we begin to see elements of anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism fairly clearly in the second century uh, among the Church Fathers, the ones that at least, according to the Church, followed the, uh, the uh, early Christian community, the Apostles, um, and that anti-Jewish sentiment begins to build uh, over the next several centuries. Um, Jews experienced that kind of um, oppression uh, under the Visigothic kingdom. Uh, and it's very interesting because many Jews, of course, were forced to convert under the Visigoths. But the fact that they were from Jewish background continued to distinguish them and, and to separate them from the rest of the Christian community. And we see that pattern continue on into the medieval period um, well beyond uh, 1391 when even if an individual was a quote-unquote sincere Catholic, the very fact that they were tainted by Jewish ancestry made them suspect. And so we have this idea that um, Judaism is not simply a belief but it's, it's actually a, a genetic disorder, so to speak. And what I mean by that is that individuals who were from Jewish backgrounds were thought to be inclined toward keeping Jewish practices and Jewish customs. But there was something within them that was innate, as far as, the, as, as, far as many old Christians were concerned, that uh, you know, forever branded them as, as suspect. And so um, in the... Uh, 1449, there's a, there's a famous incident that occurred in the city of Toledo. Uh, many Jews who had converted, and these conversos had become prominent in public office. And um, there were accusations that, that many of them continued to practice Judaism secretly. Some of them were not so secret about it. Sometimes there were accusations that they were very flagrant uh, in their observance. And, and the economic issues, the social advancement, the political advancement often brought the ire of uh, old Christians. And what happened in Toledo and eventually spread throughout um, Castile and, and into uh, you know, the, the kingdom of Spain uh, over the next uh, 100 and plus years uh, was the incorporation and the adoption of, of the uh, limpieza de sangre laws, which basically said that if you were of a Jewish background, um, and I think they would argue so many um, levels of, of uh, descendants, I can't remember offhand, um, they would consider you to be uh, suspect, and you were be, uh, your, your Christianity was suspect, and in, in some cities you were not uh, legally admissible uh, to become a, a public servant, or, be, or become a cleric, or to assume certain positions. Now, those limpieza de sangre laws were often flouted. Um, sometimes individuals would, of course, fake documents to prove that they were of old Christian lineage. Um, you know, the king and, and King Ferdinand, King Isabella, 
you know, had many uh, Jewish courtiers in their service. Uh, many of their secretaries and historians and so forth uh, were conversos uh, and, and were known to be conversos. But um, every city reacted differently to the, the rise of the converso class. And the, the idea that Judaism was no longer just a set of beliefs became ingrained in, in Spanish society. Um, and I think in, in that sense, you can link it to the rise of modern anti-Semitism, where regardless of what faith a Jew practices, their, their, their ethnicity or their Jewish blood or their DNA, so to speak, um, forever bonds them to the Jewish community. Um, and so we do have, I, I believe, the rise of anti-Semitism uh, through the Converso experience. In your book, The Secret Jews, The Complex Identity of Crypto-Jews and Crypto-Judaism, on page 40, you mentioned that Jews at that time were wearing distinctive clothing. Uh, tell us more about that. Well, the distinctive clothing was brought about by uh, the, the church and the, the monarchs. And the concern was that Jews looked the same as Christians. I mean, they had dressed the same. Uh, there were cases in which they might have been in, in neighborhoods that were mixed. Um, you know, they, they lived and they operated in society without restraint in many cases. But because of the rise of the converso class, uh, the ability to distinguish a quote-unquote converso from a Jew was almost impossible. And so what, what uh, was adopted uh, by the Kingdom of Aragon, for example, um, in the, uh, the late 14th century was the institution of distinctive clothing, badges, uh, for example, to distinguish non-Christian Jews or Jews who had not converted to Christianity from uh, conversos and hence from Christians. There was a great deal of consternation over the possibility that there may have been, um, you know, romantic uh, relationships between Jews and Christians. Uh, it's something that we see throughout uh, the literature of the period. And so the monarchs wanted to ensure that there would be a clear distinction and delineation between these communities. Um, you know, again, to what extent did all Jews do that? Um you know, there, there may have been local exemptions or they may have, uh, you know, sort of, you know, found ways to, to circumvent that. But the, the idea of distinctive clothing goes back centuries before where badges were introduced, um, you know, by the church in, in different areas. So the, the, the effect or the, the impact of Jews on Christians was something that the church considered to be a pressing matter. And so they had to find, in their mindset, they had to find a way of, of defending the Christian community against the influence of, of Jews and, and Judaism. Tell us about the process of forced conversion. I was shocked to find out what they did to Jewish children at that time. Well, of course, in, in, in 1391 um, and in, in other instances, uh, there were mass riots that spread uh, first in Seville and then throughout Castile and then through Aragon. Uh, the kingdom of Portugal was was spared that uh, due to the efforts of their king, but uh, you know entire families were were killed. Um, you know other families. Uh, you know if there was often like a division within the family itself. Part of the family may have converted. They may have submitted to baptism. Um, you know there were cases in which the grandparents may have remained Jewish, and the children and the grandchildren would convert. Um, you know, but the. The, the, the church saw um, children as sort of the key in many ways. Um, 
and in the, at the end of the uh, the 15th century, one of the one of the plans that was presented to uh, King Ferdinand um, and Isabella and Queen Isabella was um, a separation between uh, converted uh, fathers and mothers from their children, because for a century conversos had lived uh, quote unquote as Christians, but they had not received extensive education in Christian beliefs. Uh, their attendance was minimal in terms of, of Christian functions. Um, there wasn't really a lot of enthusiasm on the part of the church and clerics to, to teach them. Um, but so, so the idea that Jewish practices remained part of conversion identity is, is very easy to understand. They hadn't become Christians, uh, you know, willfully for the most part. Um, they lived among their families. They had connections, cousins, and so forth that had not converted, so there was an ability to uh, maintain some Jewish connection. And so the proposal that was made to King Ferdinand and Isabella, especially in the wake of, of uh, approximately another 50,000 Jews that chose to convert and stay um, in, in Spain in 1492, was that their children be separated from them and raised in, in old Christian families. And the idea, of course, there was that only um, supervised visits would be allowed, so that the uh, the old Christians and the church could monitor the influence of of parents who had been born as Jews um, on on the children. Uh, now that ultimately was not adopted, but it shows you the extent to which Judaism was considered a threat. Uh, the likelihood of conversos reverting back to Judaism, um, how likely that was perceived, um, and then it also shows you uh, something else is is. Even after Jews had been expelled from the peninsula in 1492, there was a, a um, an acknowledgement on the part of the Inquisition and a part of and, and on the part of the monarchs that Judaism could still be observed in some form or fashion um, for generations. I mean, it had existed uh, for a hundred years under attack, but uh, you know, conversos had had the reinforcement of, of Jews who had not converted, but I think the fact that they were willing to consider these kinds of things reveals how strong Jewish identity remained among the conversos, that they would even consider this. So I think that's quite telling. In your book, you mentioned that there was a couple of instances where some of the persecuted people took up arms against their foes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about them? Uh, yes. Um, in in uh, in 1449 in Toledo, and in various cases, I think it's 1467, 1473, there are various cities, um, I think in Ciudad Real, I don't have my notes in front of me, so I apologize, but, um, you know, conversos were not uh, sitting back and allowing uh, old Christians to to riot against them without any consequence. Um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a description of a battle that took place where I think there were something like 300 conversos that formed like a militia, and they basically threatened the rest of the town that if any one of them was touched, you know, they would react violently. Um, there, you know, there's there's cannon involved. Um, there's another occurrence um, in the book that I talk about actual siege engines being used. I, I mean, it's it's like a story. I mean, it's a novel, you know, for lack of a better term. You know, it's amazing the extent to which conversos were willing to take up arms. Um, I also discuss in the book, of course, um, I think a little bit of information on the 
on the uh, the action of some conversos against the establishment of the Inquisition. Um, you know, there's the murder of uh, Pedro Arbues. Um, you know, there's different assassination plots that are that are uh, you know planned against inqui other inquisitors. I mean, it's a, it's a community that is striving to protect itself. Um, and if the if the church and if the monarchs were not willing to defend them against, you know, perhaps real or false accusations, many of them were willing to take up arms and and defend themselves. So um, it's it's interesting, and and your question leads to another point, is that by the 1450s and 60s. Con many conversos supported a strong monarchy, and they supported a strong monarchy because they believed that the monarchs would be able to protect them um, and and the Jewish community. So Jews, the Jews who had not converted were in favor of, of a strong monarchy. Conversos wanted that because it would protect them and their rights. And yet, uh, what's amazing is that the fact that they wanted a strong monarchy would ultimately be their demise. And what do I mean by that? If, if it had not been for Jewish and, and conversive support, at least one could argue, for King Ferdinand and Isabella, the, the decision of 1492 uh, would not have been possible. And what I mean by that is that because there were so many civil wars that had taken place in, um, in Castile and in Aragon and so forth, the support that was given to strong monarchs uh, ultimately allowed an edict of expulsion to become a possibility. So it's, I guess you would say it's ironic that uh, in, in voting or, or in supporting, uh, I should say supporting, um, the strong kingship and queenship, they ultimately ceded uh, the, the destruction of the Jewish community in Spain. So it's, it's, it's a tragedy that you often find uh, repeated in Jewish history. You mentioned in one of our conversations that people are fascinated with the Inquisition. How is this so? Well, I think that many people are, uh, mistaken um, about what the Inquisition was about. Um, most most people that I talk to that are that are not familiar with uh, inquisitional history do not understand that the Spanish Inquisition and of course the Portuguese Inquisition when it was established, their focal uh, point or their I should say their focus uh, in the in the first several decades of their existence was specifically on the threat of Judaizing among conversos. Uh, there, the, the, the Inquisition, of course, has its seed, seeds in the uh, early medieval period. Um, it began as a tribunal to, to root out um, al the Albigensian heresy. Um, and you can even find earlier tribunals that existed uh, during the times of the emperor uh, Theodosius and, and Justinian. Um, but the Spanish Inquisition was unique in the sense that it had uh, the apparatus of the state um, behind it. Uh, before that period, you would have what we call the papal inquisitions. They were usually headed by, uh, you know, a local bishop. Um, you know, they could they, they could obviously perform um, investigations. And, and what we see in the immediate aftermath of the uh, the violence of 1391, uh, especially in the Kingdom of Aragon, we see uh, inquisitors, you know, local bishops undertaking. Uh, activities in conjunction with the king of, of Aragon to root out Judaizing. Uh, the punishments were usually uh, not as severe. There, there might be financial penalties, things of that nature, but the, the Inquisition was was active. 
but what we see under King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella is a an inquisition that is a, a very highly tuned uh, bureaucracy. It's a fine-tuned machine. Um, I mean, it's it's amazing from a just a historical perspective the the extent of documentation uh, that they provided. Um, you know, th these these uh, the investigations and the 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 sessions, the court sessions, if you will, were were sealed for for uh, for the most part. Um, and so, when we look at the amount of notes that we're taking, it, it's it's truly amazing because whatever we think about the legitimacy of the uh, depositions or the confessions or the 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 questions that were asked of the individuals, the amount of notes that were taken, the the uh, discussions are are copious. I mean, it's very large volumes of information, um, and of course the Inquisition had tremendous authority and power to be able to root out what they considered to be the number one threat to the kingdom, which was this this Judaizing, this heresy. Um, in, in subsequent decades, um, after having prosecuted thousands and thousands of, of conversos, uh, they began to shift their attention toward uh, the emergence of Protestantism, uh, bigamy, witchcraft, uh, uh, homosexuality, other things of that nature, but what we see in, in the 1500s and again in the 1600s is we have periods of, re, of the resurgence of, of Judaizing as a major point of concern. Um, and so what, what's fascinating is that, of course, the Inquisition uh, doesn't end until the 19th century. Um, I mean, by that point, um, you know, the focus of, of Judaizing uh, or the, the topic of Judaizing was not really uh, a primary concern, but it's amazing to realize that an institution that began uh, in Spain in, in uh, 1478, or depending on how you date it from its actual point of, of uh, arrest, uh, continued on until the, uh, I think formally until 1834, 1821, you know, different dates depending on um, when the final uh, uh, structure is closed. But, I mean, it's something that lasts for centuries um, and it's like I said, it's often misunderstood, but the primary reason was conversos, and I think that is what some what most people fail to realize. So, what is the evidence that shows that the expulsion happened for Jews not to have any influence on the conversos? Well, if you look at the edict of expulsion that was given by uh, uh, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, it specifically states uh, that the expulsion is essentially the final solution, if you will, to the converso problem. And what they say is that, you know, uh, I'm paraphrasing, uh, you know, we've had an inquisition that has been active, you know, they've, they've you know, uh, documented that, uh, you know, conversos are receiving help from non-converted Jews, um, you know, in a, in a variety of ways. Uh, they're being taught Judaism. Uh, the inquisition has been, you know, attacking this problem but we realize that unless we remove the root of the problem, uh, Judaizing will, will always be a, a, a challenge. And, and, and what's fascinating is that if you think about it, um, in 1391, you have these mass conversions. So by 1492, you know, it's, it's 100 years. And you're talking about, um, you know, second, third, fourth generation conversos who are often connected to the Jewish community in one form or another. Now, that doesn't mean that they were, you know, sort of Orthodox Jews as we would perceive them, 
but there is a point of Jewish connection. There may have been a Passover. They may have contributed money to a synagogue. Uh, you know, they may have even chanced to go to a synagogue on Yom Kippur. Um, you know, there's different things that they did, but the, the, as long as Jews remain there, it was a, a very strong point of, of encouragement to conversos to return. Um, and I highlighted in Secret Jews uh, various examples where, um, you know, you have a, a family member who invites their uh, converso cousin uh, to come over to their, to their house to celebrate Passover. Um, or, you know, they, they, they spend time with them, and of course they're eating kosher food, they're drinking kosher wine. I mean, it's something that is, uh, reinforces uh, the experience of, of being Jewish, and, and it's very interesting. I think you'll find this fascinating. Um, one of the individuals that visited um, uh, a service that we had at, at our home uh, about a month ago um, he had read, uh, he was reading Secret Jews, and there was a, there was a quote that I had that, you know, uh, um, feasting or eating at a Jew's table was a tremendous experience for a converso, because what they could theorize about Judaism, what they might read about it, what they might hear about it, uh, was not the same as a, an experience in a, in a, in a Jew's home. You know, they would recite the brachot, the blessings before the meal. Uh, you know, they would eat kosher food. They would sing, uh, you know, if it was on Shabbat, they might sing Zemirot, or they might do the Berkat Hamazon, the grace after meals. It, it would be a, a Jewish experience that was unequal to them. And what was fascinating to me was that this individual who, uh, you know, is coming from a crypto-Jewish background said that he felt the same thing. Uh, you know, he, he, he ate with us. Uh, we davened, we prayed, uh, you know, we sang songs. I mean, he felt that it was, he was living out uh, something that he had read about, uh, you know, from the 14th and 15th centuries. So it, it was an amazing experience for those individuals to have the reinforcement and encouragement of, of Jews who had not converted. Uh, and it often motivated conversos to, to leave the peninsula to return to Judaism, and, and oftentimes, if, if, even if they didn't leave, to take very bold steps to maintain Jewish identity uh, while they, they lived in Spain. So how did the leaders of the Jewish community feel about these forced converts? Well, I think that, you know, like anything, there is a, um, it's a wide spectrum. I, I would say that if I had to describe it uh, briefly, I would say that they were always open to uh, conversos, Returning to Judaism, um, I think the the extent of uh, discussion on this topic is, is reflected in quite a few um, uh, responsa. You know, these the, basically these uh, you have a community that is asked a question about um, a woman who is a converso woman who is married uh, in Spain to another converso. Um, you know, she she has a ketuba, she leaves. And a community in North Africa, for example, might be asking, what do we do? You know, does she have to get a get? Does she have to get a legal divorce? Uh, is, the marriage, is the marriage valid to begin with? Um, and you have these kinds of questions. You have questions about the kosher status of wine that is under the supervision of conversos. Uh, you have conversos writing questions about, you know, um, you know, what do I do in certain circumstances that, uh, you know, I have my non-Jewish neighbors, my Christian neighbors that are going to see what I'm eating. Uh, it's Passover. If I don't eat, uh, you know, if I eat chametz or if I eat leaven, 
Um, you know, is that acceptable? I mean, there's, there's all kinds of correspondence that take place. And the very fact that these questions are being asked shows you that conversos were something that was, were important to the Jewish community. And I would, I would suggest that in most cases you find a desire on the part of rabbis and communities to welcome them in. Um, and, and to make allowances under Jewish law to find scenarios where they can be flexible with Jewish law uh, to embrace them. And I'll, and I'll give you one example. The, the, the problem of, of marriage uh, was, was a great consideration because you often had women fleeing the peninsula to join Jewish communities in the Ottoman Empire or North Africa. Um, and if the rabbis were to consider converso marriage as valid, um, it was actually detrimental because then the woman would be forced to get a get, to get a divorce document from her husband. And of course that would entail physical and, um, uh, you know, f uh, danger, but also the practicalities of, of undergoing a trip like that. And, you know, that period of time was, it was also extremely uh, complicated as well. So sometimes the rabbis make decisions that seem to be negative with regards or with respect to Jewish the Jewish identity of conversos, but they're actually beneficial because their concern is to deal with the individual that has made it out and not necessarily with the theoretical status of the conversos that had not made it out. Um, in other cases, there's a there's an incident that I recorded in the book where there's there was an individual in um, in uh, I can't remember if it was in Venice, but it was in the Italian peninsula. Um, and he had fled the uh, Iberian peninsula. He, he was very sincere about Judaism. Um, you know, he, he contributed to the welfare of the synagogue. He prayed. He was, he was extremely zealous. Uh, but he had not circumcised himself because his plan was to return to the peninsula and um, essentially liquidate his, his assets and, of course, you know, uh, escape again. Uh, and there's actually a dialogue there between the rabbis as to whether this individual should be allowed to come up to the Torah uh, and participate in the honors. And and you have some disagreement there. Um, and the disagreement is not specifically over this individual, but the message that it might send to others. But the very fact that they're having that conversation shows you that they're wanting to do everything to, uh, you know, encourage this individual to recognize that circumstances were, were complicated. Um, and at the same time, they don't want to give like a, you know, get a jail free card for conversos that were not willing to make a sacrifice. And so sometimes you, you find rabbis like Rabbi Mortera uh, in, uh, in Amsterdam who, who, who give these very harsh uh, sermons about conversos who have stayed in the peninsula you know, if, if they don't repent, they're, they're in dangers of the fires of hell, uh, you know, things of that nature. And, and it strikes you as a very negative tone. But I think if you look at the context of what he and others wrote, he really wants to motivate these individuals to leave. Um, and he wants them to get out to a place where they say, listen, um, it's going to be challenging. There's going to be sacrifice. Uh, but I need to make the effort to, to move and to leave, you know, to, to get my family to come with me. Um, there was a there was an incident that I recorded in Secret Jews about a community in, in France. I think it was in Bayonne. Um, you know, they write to Amsterdam and they ask, you know, you know, we're not circumcised. You know, technically it's not legal 
for us to practice Judaism openly. Um, you know, we received a letter. We were, you know, we, we had a visitor that said basically we're we're cut off from Israel. You know, we don't. Um, you know, if we're not circumcised, we're we're going to perish, etc. And uh, there's a rabbi that responds to them. Uh, and on the one hand, you know, he tells them, you know, circumcision, uh, Brit Milah, is is not going to resolve all your problems. I mean, it's 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 a sign of the covenant, but it's one component. As long as you continue to live, um, you know, sort of this outward Catholic lifestyle, you're you're not going to be, for lack of a better term, saved. But at the same time, at the end of the letter, he says, you know, what we do not wish for you to be cut off. You know, we want you know the, he's, he's embracing them. Uh, even as as he may be chastising them, they are part of of the people of Israel, even if they are not in good standing. Um, and I think that that's what you see. You sort of this push and pull. You know, they want to draw conversos to Judaism, and they want them to to return to the Jewish community. So I would say that overall, it's it's positive. You're always going to find exceptions, but I think that the rabbis are focused on bringing conversos back to the community. According to our previous guests and others. The percentage of people who are Jewish descendants in Latin America is low. Can you give us some figures that support your perspective about the modern communities claiming Jewish heritage? Well, I, I think that the issue that you have to start off with is, of course, what, what do we mean by, by Jewish? And obviously, there's a halachic perspective that uh, someone who is born to a Jewish mother is, is a Jew in, in perpetuity. Um, and of course, if there's an unbroken matrilineal line, then it doesn't matter that the individual, uh, you know, the ancestry, uh, the ancestors, I'm sorry, may have converted. Uh, but the difficulty that we have, of course, with individuals in Latin America or individuals who are claiming this uh, converso background is, is the question of documentation. So, you know, some people, um, you know, have argued that, you know, we should look at the, the oral tradition, uh, the, the, the practices of these individuals, uh, you know, their family, uh, things that are distinctively Jewish, and I think that that is that's a good starting point. I think that it, it's not an easy question, and I don't think that we. I think we should be very careful in doubting the assertions of individuals who are looking to return to the community of Israel. Um, I think there have been plenty of circumstances where, um, you know, we have to recognize that there is unfortunately a political component uh, involved in and accepting uh, Jews, uh, even individuals that choose to go through conversion often find that those conversions are, are not accepted. Um, I've known individuals that have converted multiple times, um, and tragically the conversions have not been accepted even though they've been done uh, in, in orthodox settings. And so when an individual comes to me and tells me they're from a converso background, I, I take them at, at face value but what I do is I, I, I see or I observe what the commitment of the individual is. Um, and then if there are issues that need to be resolved, if, if there is, um, you know, a Brit Law circumcision that has to take place, or, um, you know, if there are marriage issues, things of that nature, then I try to explain, um, you know, sort of the requirements that are in place uh, for these individuals. And so... I think we have to realize that everybody is at a different place uh, along their journey. Um, and I think that, um, you know, pushing away people who are not sincere, I think, is fine. But, of course, it's it's difficult sometimes to judge that sincerity. 
we sort of have to take individuals um, on a case-by-case basis. I have personally not seen uh, myriads of individuals claiming to be uh, converso backgrounds. Um, so I, I know that others have claimed that, uh, and, and they usually point to occurrences of, of you know, churches in, in Latin America or something. But I think for the most part, those are isolated incidents. I think it's difficult to uh, dismiss uh, someone's claim without understanding where they're coming from and their their personal history, their the, the background, the oral traditions that they have. So I, I can't provide you with, with numbers, but I can only say that I, I think that claims that that uh, there are myriads of uh, people out there claiming that they're conversos is not something that I have seen. Maybe others have experienced that, but um, you know there might be some high-profile cases, and I think I've, I've read maybe a story about a, a church in Colombia, but I, I don't see it as something widespread, certainly not with the individuals that I have met and, and the ones that I continue to meet. It's, it's usually you know, ones and twos and a family here and a family there. Um, you know, there's a rabbi, uh, Joseph Garcia, in in, uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, and I think he claims that he has helped about 400 people, uh, and he has been doing this, you know, probably 10 to 12 years or something like that. I mean, you know, 400 sounds like a lot, but it's a relatively small number. Um, I think in the context, you know, in, in the big picture, it's it's very small, and, and most of those individuals, I think, are are widespread. I mean, they're not just from, you know, Phoenix or something like that. I mean, it's 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 across a lar- large uh, territory. So, uh, again, I, I think it's a small number of individuals that claim this because it's not something that is, is popular. I, I don't think there's a, a quote-unquote benefit that people think there is. Um, and it takes a lot of sacrifice and, and commitment to follow through with, with this, especially if you're looking to... Uh, re-embrace, uh, you know, Ju- Judaism from a religious perspective. Can you tell us more about your organization and what are the options for the descendants of crypto-Jews in our day? The organization that I have is called the B'nai Anasim Center for Education. Um, and it came about, um, it started as a blog uh, a couple years ago. And um, I actually had people contact me through the blog. Um, some of them were local and uh, some of them were from... Uh, within the state of Texas, some of them were outside of the state of Texas and in other states and even even in other countries. And um, you know the full the 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 focus of the the center was to provide education, um, you know, articles, uh, links for people that were interested in learning about the crypto Jewish experience from a historical perspective, uh, to learn about it from a uh, religious perspective, um, and then also to be a point of, of education for those that were interested in in investigating um, Judaism uh, religiously. And so, the 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 newest dimension to the organization has been uh, publishing. Uh, of course, my my great focus is on uh, specifically crypto Jewish studies. That's where Secret Jews comes from. Uh, but I've, I'm working on a book on the Inquisition. Uh, and then I've also focused on publishing short introductions to, to uh, you know, kosher, uh, Jewish prayer, um, things of that nature that will eventually, God willing, be translated into Spanish. We have our first um, um, book that is, is, has just been translated. We just have to go through the 
the the setting, you know, entering everything. It's, it's been done manually, um, and so that's one dimension of the of the center. The second is is really on a practical level. Uh, there's there are lectures that I give um, locally in the Dallas Fort Worth area. Uh, lectures on different topics. Sometimes they're related specifically to crypto Judaism. Uh, a lot of the individuals that attend are interested in, in uh, understanding Judaism better. So, for example, uh, about a month ago, I gave a, an introduction to uh, the Torah Shebe'al Peh, the, the oral law. Um, and um, before that, I had talked about different types of Judaism. Um, you know, so it's, it's a mixture of things that are specifically focused on the crypto-Jewish experience. Some are uh, on the broader Sephardic experience. Um, and then the other component uh, is actually having uh, Jewish events uh, for individuals that are from this background. So, for example, we're having uh, a Seder uh, for people that I have met through the center. Uh, we have services right now that we're conducting uh, approximately once or twice a month. We'll do uh, Shacharit services, morning services on Shabbat. Uh, we'll do an occasional evening service uh, for the end of Shabbat, Chabdallah, uh, things of that nature. Uh, we've done some Shabbat dinners in the past. So there's sort of multiple uh, endeavors at work, um, and we're trying to sort of address each need as it presents itself. Um, you know, if, if, it's a, if somebody just has a, an interest in this area historically, then, then we have material that they can learn from. Um, if there's there's an interest in individuals uh, reconnecting with the Jewish community, uh, then I try to help them out as a rabbi. And, um, you know, there are also individuals that are uh, from Christian backgrounds that are not conversos that simply learn about this. They're fascinated by it, and they want to have a deeper appreciation about of Judaism and the Jewish people in general. So it, it becomes an excellent opportunity to, to uh, build some interfaith bridges, help fight anti-Semitism, um, and give them a, a new appreciation for uh, the complexity of of the uh, uh, Hispanic experience. So, so those those are things that we're working on, and and um, uh, I think you didn't mention it, but I'm you know I'm a full time engineer, so that that takes most of my time. But but these things are are very important to me. I'm very passionate about them, and um, it just excites me to be able to connect with people. Uh, in different cities, different states, uh, different countries, and there's it's ones and twos, but you know it, it does add up, and and it is fascinating to connect with other individuals that have this this interest and this passion. Before we close, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about the politics and the issues that people face? Uh, I know you mentioned that you're trying to combat that and and try to help people through it, but what's the overall um, climate nowadays. Um, in your book, you mentioned that um, people being persecuted against all odds were able to uh, keep some semblance of Judaism in their lives. And nowadays, with no persecution, we're still struggling with people becoming um, dis, uh, disenfranchised or even disinterested in, in religion altogether. So what are the things that people who find out about their ancestry either through oral tradition or through their research, what are the things that they'll face um, from the get-go? I wanted to uh, start off uh, answering your question by referring to uh, Rav Cook, who's a very famous rabbi um, in, in the 
in the land of Israel. And he wrote uh, something which I'm, par- I'm going to paraphrase, but he said that sometimes individuals are compelled, sometimes they're forced uh, to certain behavior, you know, to, to certain sin because of their emotions, because of their circumstances, because of things that they effectively cannot control. Uh, and it was interesting to me that he used the image of, uh, the, you know, the Hebrew word uh, ones, uh, you know, this compulsion or this, this force to sort of have a compassion toward individuals that had, uh, uh, you know, commit a sin. Um, and my point in saying that is that in our society today, there are circumstances which often compel individuals into decisions that they would not normally make. Um, I was having a conversation with one individual who comes from a crypto-Jewish background, um, and he he really hesitated in sharing this with some of his family because he anticipated that there would be conflict. Um, you know, that's, that's an issue. I, I have other circumstances where there's conflict between uh, a married couple. Um, you know, there's, there's uh, issues with a greater family. There's not an openness. Maybe... Maybe the family is, is religiously devout, um, you know, they might be Protestant or they might be Catholic or they may not have any religious background, but they may have an element that uh, in them that really shuns uh, the Jewish community. So I think the most important challenge that people face is, a, uh, is the familial one. Um, you know, the, 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 the price or the cost of choosing a Jewish identity or, or re-embracing that um, with a family that is not supportive. I think that's the number one issue. Um, I think the second issue is, is the simple fact that because of their Hispanic backgrounds, um, their oftentimes is not the kind of acceptance that is ideal within the established uh, Jewish community. Um, if they go, what, what I have seen personally, and it's not, a, it's not intended as a critique, but many of the families that I work with are socially and, um, you know, for lack of a better term, they're very conservative in their family values. So they often go to uh, progressive Jewish congregations, and even though they might be accepted, uh, you know, Jewishly on a certain level, they often struggle to identify with things that they're not accustomed to. Um, And then if they go to more traditional or orthodox settings, then they have their Jewishness uh, questioned, um, and then they run into another problem. So it's almost like they don't have, uh, th- there's not a place for them. You know, they, if they go to the Orthodox, then their Jewishness is going to be discounted, and they'll have to convert. Um, and along with that, there are all kinds of social, financial uh, implications. I, I told a story on the blog recently about uh, a Cuban family that I had met, very, very nice family, uh, they had they had a, this just a big heart. They had adopted some some uh, children from Africa, and uh, you know they they wanted to reconnect with the Jewish community. They went to, a, to an Orthodox rabbi. They talked about their their family background, uh, and the rabbi was very candid with them. I, I mean, I, on the one hand, it's like I have to give him uh, you know some kudos for for being honest from his perspective, but it was very devastating to them. I mean, he told them basically. Um, I'm concerned about the multiracial aspect of your family. You know, uh, I want to think practically about who they're going to marry. Um, you know, and then there was a financial issue. They, they were not uh, in good financial uh, 
in a good financial position, and uh, conversion for them um, was going to uh, require a Jewish uh, Orthodox day school that was going to cost, you know, ten to fifteen thousand dollars a piece. And I think they had something like four or five children. It was impossible for them to do that. And so, you know, that that's one extreme. But I think that people that are embracing or rediscovering this, their past, uh, their their family backgrounds, uh, they often don't realize the the obstacles that they may face. So they may not be fleeing persecution from Spain, but they may be facing rejection by their family. They may be facing rejection by an established Jewish community. Um, they may be facing financial difficulties. They may be facing, um, you know, cultural, uh, even linguistic issues. Um, you know, they're minorities within the United States, and then they're almost, in a sense, becoming minorities of the minorities by pursuing a Jewish identity. Um, and sometimes that can be too much for, for some people to handle, and oftentimes it may be overwhelming. So I think that these are very real issues. Um, you know, they may not be uh, violent in, in, in terms of the suffering that people face, but um, they're real nonetheless. And I think that uh, what I hope to achieve is, is at least lend an ear to them and let them know that somebody understands, you know, where they're coming from. On a final note, um, there's a big section in your book about the um, the people who were conversos or crypto Jews who were just so um, disenfranchised and so discouraged with religion altogether that they became the first skeptics and the the people who kind of brought in uh, naturalistic philosophy. And I came across the book Nothing Sacred by. Douglas Rushkoff, where he talks about how nowadays religion is losing its relevancy, and you and I were talking about how sometimes because of politics or because of modern ideas, religion is kind of being uh, segregated to the realm of, of scholars or of people on the fringes. So what aspect of the crypto-Jewish experience can help us understand the modern-day struggle and the issues that all people deal with when it comes down to spiritual perspectives and, and religion in general? I mean, I'll be honest, I think that's a very uh, complex question. But I think that if we look back at the individuals, um, you know, particularly in, in Amsterdam, for example, um, you know, they had uh, oftentimes... Uh, you know, obviously Christian education, they were leaving Portugal or Spain. Um, and the challenge for many of them was um, a view of Judaism that may have been different from what they had expected. Um, many times they were extremely educated, uh, and so they may have resented the fact that, you know, the, the rabbis who had, may, you know, not necessarily had the kind of university education that many of them had were you know, in this position of authority. Um, and there was often an, an unwillingness on many of their, uh, uh, on the part of many of them to adapt to a very, um, you know, rigorous environment. Um, you know, there were some individuals that converted to Protestantism within, uh, you know, the Amsterdam community. And of course, as you mentioned, there were some that were skeptic. And I think that, um, It's important, uh, one thing that I learned from Rabbi Sherwin of Blessed Memory is that 
unless individuals are taught why things are done and why what they mean, there will always be less of an impetus or a sense of um, purpose in a person keeping their faith, whatever it is. Um, and I think that what I'm trying to get at is the, the conversos who made it out of the peninsula did so because their families, their parents, had struggled to maintain an awareness of who they were. Um, they managed to pass an identity of faith to them, and they were willing to undergo uh, suffering, financial loss, even potential capture by the Inquisition, because they really believed in what um, their their families, their, their ancestors had given to them. It may have been imperfect, it may have been partial, it may have been flawed, but they gave them this idea that they were linked to the people of Israel, that they were Jews, and that they had an obligation to maintain that uh, identity with them uh, into the future. And so I think that... Um, Unless, you know, Jews do something because they really believe it, um, you know, Jewish identity will fade. And I think that uh, it's interesting that, that someone like Baruch Spinoza or Benedictus Spinoza was actually uh, an individual that grew up in the community. So it, it, sometimes you have these situations where an individual grows up in a religious context and, and still chooses to abandon it, still chooses to um, essentially leave the community. Uh, so it's not, it's not so clear-cut sometimes. It's, it's not just because an individual may not have that background, but even after having that background, certain individuals find other uh, perspectives alluring. Um, and it's, it's, it's something that we can't necessarily diagnose but uh, on an on individual basis, but I think that the Converso experience illuminates our understanding of, of our situation in America and of Western Jewry uh, in the sense that we have a struggle to live in two worlds um, and how we integrate uh, the Jewish world into our daily life will ultimately be the, the arbiter of, of whether we're successful uh, or not. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Bejarano Gutierrez. And we hope that in the future we can uh, have you on again talk about philosophy, religion, or uh, how spirituality can still be relevant. If people want to uh, find your book, how can they get a hold of it? They can obviously go to Amazon and um, just type in Secret Jews and it will come up. Uh, as I mentioned, there's several books that I have uh, published. Um, and you can also visit CryptoJewishEducation.com, CryptoJewishEducation.com. You know, I, I try to update that blog as much as possible. Um, and I also try to highlight uh, books by other authors. I, I recently had a review of a colleague's uh, recently published work. Um, and you can, uh, you can contact me through the blog as well. You know, if, if you get one of the books, please, you know, contact me. Um, I love to hear feedback. and I want to know what I can improve. Um, if something's not clear, uh, I really appreciate the engagement. Um, and I want it to be a work that, you know, is, is improved on. Uh, in the future, you know, regardless of the revisions that it takes, I want it to be sort of a, a living document that can be added to and uh, improved on for the future.